Just a note to let you know this episode contains topics that some may find triggering. If you need support, please head to the show notes where you can find a range of mental health support contacts for both Australia and worldwide. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Ben Venker. Ben is a 43-year-old father of two and a counsellor who specialises in alcohol and drug rehabilitation. He is also the manager of Reset Life, an abstinence-based recovery program run through First Step right here in Melbourne. Ben was inspired to help people living with addiction after starting into his own recovery journey over 10 years ago. Ben's sobriety date is the 31st of August 2012 and he's here today to share his story. Ben, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? I'm good, Ash. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I'm so, so pleased that you're here in the studio with me today. We've had a few hit misses mm-hmm. trying to make mm-hmm. this happen, but I'm beyond grateful that you've taken the time out of your busy schedule to be here. You've got a big story to share. Yeah, no, it's... Uh it's a real privilege to come along and uh, share my story and, and speak to you about my recovery and, you know, help break down those uh, barriers around stigma and, you know, Excellent. talk loudly. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're here to do. I love that. So that the audience can get to know you a little bit better, I'd love to kick it off with you sharing where do you live, what does an average day look like and what do you do for fun? Sure. Um, so I live in St Kilda in Melbourne. Um and a typical day for me is pretty busy. Uh, as you said, I'm a father of two. I've got a, a four and a six-year-old and that uh, certainly keeps me on my toes and you know, I certainly need to be organised for that. Um, and working full-time as well uh, at First Step. And uh, So a typical day for me is normally kids are up between 5.30 and 6 and we, uh, we're straight into it. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's an early day. Um, and you know, up early, routines done, and then and then off to work. And uh, you know, work is is pretty busy. Um, we, uh, <coughs> you know, I've got a team of five there. I'm I'm number five, and uh, yeah, we work uh, work closely with people who are trying to address their substance use. And mm. um, you know, each day is a little bit different at work, but uh, you know, it's it's challenging yet rewarding what we do. Um, and then five o'clock hits and it's straight home and, and straight into those routines with the kids again and 
um, and hopefully getting them down by about eight o'clock so I can then finally have some some time with my wife and uh, yeah, beautiful and and you know plan for what's coming the next day. Mm. So. I'd love to know. I'm jumping straight into a question here. Most people generally. If they, if they drink alcohol or take drugs, they unwind with the drink at the end of the day. You know, they get the kids in bed and it's like, crack the bottle open, time to unwind. Yeah. How do you unwind? Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, prior to, you know, for me, alcohol was a, a big problem in my life and I couldn't really picture doing life without drinking. Um, and it, it was the way I, I released at the end of the day and, and found some escape from the world. Um but for me these days, um, you know, once I once we do get the kids down, it's it's time for my wife and I to sit down and and chat and maybe enjoy you know some Netflix or uh, or what other of the multiple streaming services that we have um, <laughs> get into something. Um, yeah, nice. And for me, you know, exercise as well is a big part of um, of our week. So yeah, excellent. Now, what about fun? Fun, yeah, look. Fun for me, like I, I love running. I found running in in recovery, and for some people, say that's not fun. But for <laughs> me, it, it it's a great release and a great escape. Um, I love the fact I can you know, leave my phone at home and mm. and and hit the pavement and have genuinely you know a good hour away from from life. Um, so that's a, a great time for me. Um, I've spoken to other people. I recently had a, a gentleman by the name of Luke and he's actually a marathon runner yep. and he found running in sobriety yep. similarly. And he talked about how running was almost like a form of meditation for him. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, not different to Luke, I, I'm, I'm the same. And, um, you know, when I found running in recovery, it was always a, a smaller distance, you know, running 5Ks or whatever. And, um, and now I have stepped it up to those bigger distances, and it is. It's um, it's a great place when you are out running on your own um, to reflect, to switch off, um, to get in tune with your body. Um, so it's certainly a, a big part of, of my life today, mm. um, which which I just love. Yeah. Um, so I, my wife, when she sees I'm a bit uh, a bit stressed or a bit quiet, um, it's tend to be what I do when I get a bit stressed. Um, she says, "Why don't you go ha- go for a run?" and that, that tends to fix things. So I love that. Yeah, 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 that's excellent. Now, Ben, I've asked you to bring in a photo today, yep. and this photo is from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. Mm-hmm. So you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was your internal world. You were struggling. Mm-hmm. Can you please describe for our listeners what are we looking at? this photo and what was going on for you at that time in your life yeah sure it's um yeah this photo is, it was a tough thing to do ash when you said provide a photo <laughs> of, of the darker days um, yeah a lot comes up yeah look it's a photo of me uh holding a microphone belting out a tune a karaoke style do you remember what song uh, i don't remember what song <laughs> okay. it was probably a cold chisel song excellent but, um, <laughs> but yeah it's at a, a work christmas party and mm. um yeah, it's a, it's a time of my life where, like, I really struggled to socialise without alcohol. Um, and every work Christmas party that I went to when I was in active substance use, um, I always wrote myself off and, you know, behaved in a manner that doesn't align with who I am and my values of at, at the essence of who I am. Um, so you could, some would look at that photo and, and say, oh, look at that guy, he's, you know, having a good time, but... 
um, within, I, I, I really despised where I was at in my life. Um, I, I really hated the fact that there was no off switch. I couldn't go to a Christmas party and just have a couple of beers or whatever it might be. Um, it was always to excess. Mm. Um, there was no off switch. Like I looked at people who, who did have the ability to have a couple of beers and, and then taper off. I was, I was quite jealous of those people mm. because I knew once I started it was on um, and that I would wake up at some point the next day having lost significant periods of the evening, so blackout sort of drinking, mm. um, checking my phone to see where was I, who did I text, who did I call, um, and checking the bank account of to mm. help sort of piece the, the night together. Mm. Um, did you wake up with anxiety? Absolutely. Oh. You know, that's dreaded, you know genuine fear around you know who have I offended um yeah it was it was a horrible way to wake up um mm. so like that photo really represents a time of my life that um I was really masking and full of shame around where I was at in my life you know that that photo's there of me in my th- early 30s um being at a different place to where a lot of my friends from high school were at, who were, who were already, um, you know, starting their families, mm. getting on in their careers and, and really established in life where I was, you know, I was struggling to keep my head above water. At that time, did you think that you had a problem with with drinking and substances or or did you just think that was – the party was still going. That was just a part of your life. Yeah, look, my look. I knew I I drank um, abnormally. I suppose you would say um, because it was every day. Like the last ten years, I stopped drinking at thirty three, and the last ten years of my drinking was every day. Um, so I knew it was different, um, but I, I got to a point probably then at, in my early thirties where I got sick and tired of letting myself down like because I would wake up in the morning and go after a big night and go okay I'm not going to drink today mm. um, and I would swear black and blue that mm. that was the case mm. like I'm not going to do that again mm. today I'm not going to drink um, and then something would shift as the day progressed like I would get to after lunch I said maybe I'll just have one or two tonight yeah. um, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm home I'm half half cut um just going, how did this happen again? Mm. And when you constantly let yourself down over and over again, obviously has an impact on self-esteem and self-worth. And then I just accepted the fact that I was a drinker. So I accepted this label of, I'm just a heavy drinker. Mm. And if you don't like that, you can get it, get out of my life. Yeah, deal um, with it. Mm. So, you know, I knew it was different. I knew it wasn't how other people drank. But at the same point, I couldn't pitch a life without it. Mm. Um, so that's just how it is. What you've described so perfectly there to me is that progression of the disease and how we don't wake up heavy drinkers. We're not born heavy drinkers. You know, it, it creeps up on you over time. Different life events can sometimes accelerate that progression. And I, when you mentioned that you wake up and you would say to yourself, I'm not going to drink again today, and you would swear black and blue, like you are telling my yeah. story. I always yeah. say, had you hooked me up onto a lie detector test mm. that morning mm. and said, Ashley, are you going to drink today? I would have said no and passed with flying colours because yeah, that was my, my true intention. But then there's that 
peculiar twist mm. where all of a sudden we think we've changed our mind yep. and then it's not such a bad idea, thinking that we'll just have one or two yep. and then the cycle mm. continues. Yeah, and it's a horrible cycle. It is. Mm. It's really mm. – it's Groundhog Day. Yep, yep. Ben, as I mentioned, we don't wake up as heavy drinkers. Life happens. Can we go back for a moment? I'd love to get a better understanding of who Ben was as a child Mm -hmm. and what was going on for you inside as you grew up. Yeah. Um, Look, I I come from a a stable home, I suppose you could say. It's like my parents were and are very loving parents and they're they're still around today and still married and – I'm one of four kids and um, my siblings are s- supportive and loving and we all get along very well. And um, so for me growing up, you know, you'd probably look from the outside and go, you know, that they have uh, a very stable household. And um, I suppose the, the part of growing up in our family was we moved a little bit with, with dad's work and... Um, so never sort of seeing a full term, uh, a full six years out at school. So a couple of different primary schools, mm. a couple of different high schools, mm. um, and that doesn't make they're not the reasons for why I drank, but it sort of it puts into I suppose perspective of where I was at as a young lad growing up. And for me, I was um, I was very quiet, um, uh, an observer, I suppose you could say, and. Um, and I remember the first time I, I drank at 13, um, that was like, wow. You know, it gave me some amazing confidence and mm. I was like, oh, this is, this is how you can really talk to people and, and chat to girls and, um, and not be really fearful of everything that you say. Um, I didn't like, as a kid, altercation with other kids. Mm. I'd steer away from that sort of stuff, so... I think for me the best way, as I learnt it, um, because I certainly didn't tell anyone how I was feeling, um, the best way to avoid anything like that is to just not really speak to people and try to avoid conversations where you might be different to other people. Mm -hmm. So really just tried to fit in and I think that comes with when you move around a little bit. You just try to to fit in and not create a wave or a stir um, as you try to make new friends and... um, yeah, so that's for me growing up was, as I said, a, a loving family, but at the same time we, we had our own challenges with, with relocation as well. So, Did you have a sense of almost like not wanting to be found out? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely. what I'm getting absolutely. from, yeah, when you described that and thinking that would be really unsettling yeah. as a child. Well, I think, you know, as as we grow up as as kids and as we go into our teenage years, like finding your identity is really important and um, – I think when you when you shift around a little bit, it's um, like where is your identity? Like if you're shifting between primary schools and you're shifting between high schools and there's different cultures and different norms at each school that you go to. Mm-hmm. So you need to adapt to those. Um, and if you're, you're adapting to one and then you move somewhere else, you need to uh, uh, change again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I certainly didn't tell anyone at the time like how much that was, how difficult that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know hindsight's a lovely thing yeah and often we don't even realize as as children and and teenagers we can be in environments where you just assume that's how it is and you don't even have it's not until we have that hindsight that you realize oh well i I was experiencing social anxiety 
I wasn't feeling comfortable within my body. I was needing X, Y, and Z. So those Mm. needs weren't met. We don't, yeah, we don't know that. So we just think it's normal. Yeah. It's just normal to feel like this. Absolutely. And there there was definitely that, as you said, that social anxiety for me. Um, Anxiety played a role and I I couldn't name that at the time. Um, But certainly, you know, since getting sober and doing some work and reflecting on, you know, what what got me to where I was and how do I stop that from happening again, Mm. um, you know, I, I learn about anxiety and how to manage that. But, uh, you know, that's that's all great stuff for me now so I can pass that on to my kids when they uh, when they get there eventually. So, Oh, it's so powerful mm. to be able to do this work and break the generational patterns. Absolutely. Because you've got two choices, yeah. right? You can either pass mm. it on or you can steer them yeah, for sure. down another path. So you started drinking at age 13. Yep. Drugs also became a part of your story. Tell me about that. Yeah, look um, – Drinking at, at 13, I, I was in regional Victoria at that point of, uh, of my life and, um, you know, it was sort of a, a big – we played a lot of sports when we were in, in regional Victoria and um, it would be play sports during the day and then meet up with your mates on a Saturday night and, um, and, and write yourself off. And um, that sort of tended to be the trend over the, our teenage years mm-hmm. um, and then we relocated back to Melbourne um, for sort of my late teens, and that's when I when I came back to Melbourne, I you know found cannabis, and um, I'm talking sort of sixteen to seventeen year old there, and um, and cannabis was the drug we used during the week um, rather than alcohol. Wow. So um, I would leave school and go smoke and come yeah. back for the afternoon classes, and you know just hide away behind our our textbooks, and um, but that was all quite normal at the time. Mm. And, um, and then we'd save alcohol because I think we felt that alcohol wrote you off too much um, and the recovery was a lot harder Yeah, where um, you could smoke weed during school and that would be okay. Um, so year, years 11 and 12 was a lot of cannabis um, during the week and then um, and then alcohol on the weekends sort of fueled our, our parties, house parties and things like that. Mm. Did you finish school? Yeah, I finished school. Yeah. Um, finished school and um, I went went to university. I, I I think it sort of ties in with, like, I had no idea what to do with my life. Um, and, you know, when I got into recovery, I finally found what I do want to do. But I, I spent, you know, um, you know, 15 years post-high school sort of doing doing jobs, various jobs that didn't really have any fulfilment to them. Um, they were just a, a means for some income. Um but yeah, finished high school, went to university. Um, what did you study at university? I'm yeah, I did, a, uh, I did a business degree. Mm. Um, it was sort of, I remember having no idea what to do and my dad suggested, why don't you do a business degree? Because they're, they're broad. Quite, quite broad. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> it's like an arts degree. Totally. totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I did that and um, yeah, like that was okay. Um mm. It's, it, it was helpful in terms of it, it sort of helped me down the track with getting some other work. and um, But again, it, it wasn't something that I leaned into with great enthusiasm mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sort of like, – I felt like I just sort of wandered into that and mm. I, I, I wandered for 15 years, I think. Yeah, yeah. I can really relate yeah. to that. Yeah. I can really relate to that. Yeah. I went back to uni at 21 and I did my degree, but I didn't actually go in and work as a journalist I because I was working part-time doing makeup and I ended up just sort of like falling more into that and then yep. 
working my way up the corporate ladder, 15 years later, I was like, hang on a minute, I think I actually want to go and be back in this this world of journalism and storytelling. But it wasn't until I got sober. And we were chatting about this off air, weren't we? It's almost like when you're in active addiction, life kind of just happens to you. It's almost like you're in a washing machine and you're just kind of getting thrown around a little bit. Yep. And then all of a sudden you get into recovery, you get choices Mm. and you are able to direct your own life. Totally, totally. Like I think since since I've entered recovery, it's these the opportunities that have presented have, have you know they've been amazing, um, mm-hmm. and I'm really grateful for those. But yeah, during uh, my active substance use, it was it was just responding to what was happening around me. Like I finished my uni degree, and then just by chance, like I was doing some part time work as uh, irrigation sort of installer, and a full time job opened up there, and like. I'm drinking and, and smoking a lot of cannabis at this point. I'm, and instead of using my degree to go and do something, I'm like, yeah, I'll take that full-time job because yeah. it's nice and easy and convenient. convenient. Mm. And I know it, mm. it's familiar and mm. ended up staying there for another 10 years. And yeah. it's like, wow. Um, yeah. But that that environment was, for me, it, it was conducive to being able to continue to drink and use the way I was. Mm. Um, mm. Wow, I'm just I'm nodding along because there's so many yeah. similarities. Tell me... When did you start to notice consequences? Yeah. Um, look, I think from, from 23 to 33, 33 is when I pulled up and mm. um, 23 I lost my licence for drink driving. Um, so I knew things weren't travelling well because I, I was obviously making bad decisions. Um, so th- those last 10 years were were when I realised that – not that I needed help, but I, I knew that um, – I, I knew the wheels were starting to fall off. Mm. Um, so losing my licence, I was um, in a relationship at that point um, that was not um, – it was a relationship that was quite damaging for both myself and my partner at that point. And um, we were both struggling at the time with substance use and – but both of us too scared to move away from each other because mm. it's familiar and you'd rather sit in that familiar pain rather than go out and be on your own. Um, so, look, I think around the 23 to 25-year-old year, year old mark, I was I was just surviving. Um, mm. I was just trying to get by and, and just make ends meet. Like, with, with the amount of drinking and using that I was doing, I, I was literally living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Um, no savings at all. Um, borrowing money from parents. Um, so things weren't looking great. Um, Were there any interventions or was there any outside help for people concerned or were you hiding that pretty well? Yeah, look, there was some – there was def- definitely concern and I found this out later, but during – that time, um, mum and dad had, had had spoken up to me and, and expressed a couple of times, "Is you are you okay with your drinking?" And um, but again, I, I was a young adult as well, so um, they weren't overstepping the mark. They were just expressing their concern, mm-hmm. um, but no specific interventions um, until I hit thirty three and, and said I need some help. Mm. Can we go back to that sort of 25-year mark just for a moment? I'd love to know, with 
hindsight, was there anything that your parents could have said to you then that could have prevented you crashing and bashing for another eight years? Look, I, I don't think so. Mm. Um, look, and I know I've, I've seen firsthand in the work that I do the, the value of, um, of, of peer workers and people with lived experience who go and, and share the, the message of hope and recovery and I think they're probably the only people that I would have listened to. Mm-hmm. Like at that point I was 25, even though the walls are starting to crumble around me, um, I didn't want to look at that. Um, sure, I drank and I drank heavily, but as I said before, like that's just who I am. Mm. Um, and if you push too much, I'm just going to push you away. Mm. So mm. I don't think there was anything at that point. Like I, for me, I needed the consequences to to weigh up a bit more. Mm. Um, and like they were piling up in front of me slowly, mm. um, and that uh, I was um, had really a lot of negative self talk, a lot of you know, poor self esteem and self worth. Um, but it wasn't at the point it was five years later. Um, mm. So as mm. you mentioned, it's progressive mm. um, and I didn't want to look at it at the time. So I don't think there's anything they could have said. Yeah, I do think it's this really fine line. My parents were the same, like you have to be ready. Mm. You have to be ready to want to accept the help and what's very difficult for loved ones is to sometimes you have to step away and watch the train crash. Yeah. It's, it's the only way. Absolutely. And it's horrible for them. Yeah. Horrible for them to watch. Yeah. Mm. Ben, what was going on for you from a mental health standpoint in that last 10 years? Yeah, well, um, the last 10 years was um, – it's sort of like it, it creeps up, creeps up, creeps up, then it ramps up for me. And those last five years that really ramped up, I um, – Every time, or most times, I drank. I, I, I would um, cross my values, um, and every time I crossed my values, I was hitting my self-esteem and self-worth, and waking up with guilt, shame, and remorse. Um, and I, I hated that, and I hated the fact that you know I'm, I'm heading towards thirty, and I am, you know, I. I look at my siblings who have got kids and they're, you know, they're, they've got their houses and they're looking pretty stable and they look happy. Um, and inside me is I, I, I hate who I am. Like I'm thinking about how can I kill myself? Mm. Um, I'm, the, I'm the black sheep of the family. I've got this horrible dialogue about who I am as a person. Weak-willed, um, can't stop drinking on on my own, can't stop using drugs, can't speak to anyone about that either because of of just the shit person that I am. So to have all that going on, um, you know, feeling – I don't know if I had depression, but I I certainly was in a depressed state. Um, So, yeah, it really ramped up towards the end there. Mm. Um, Mm. As I said, like for someone to feel that – suicide is is an option Mm. like that's a really sad place for somebody to get to um incredibly sad and was that because you felt there was no way out absolutely yeah Yeah, there's no way there's no way out because i keep waking up and i keep doing the same thing every day like that groundhog day that Mm. you mentioned Mm. um and i don't want to 
I don't want to have to own up to the fact that I am at that point what I believed was weak-willed. Um, yeah. I'm such a, a useless person. Um, I don't want to be the one that has to say that. And an easier option might be when I just kill myself and then all this goes away. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a heartbreaking place yeah. to be when you don't think that there's any other solution. But the truth of the matter there absolutely yeah. is. And yeah. I'd love to talk about that now. So you got to this point where you were at the end of the road, you'd had enough, you were sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. Mm. So what did you do to turn your life around? Yeah, it's, um, I've been asked this question a couple of times about what, what was that defining moment where you, know, you, you make that decision to stop and um, there was no decision to ever stop. Um, I've worked that out. Um, for me, it was another day, another day like any other day. Um, I had gotten home from work um, and I was, I was doing a trade at the time and so I pulled up in where I was living in, in my ute and amphetamines had been part of my life for the last 18 months and, um, you know, I had a fridge full of grog, I had amphetamines in my pocket, I had cannabis inside and I sat in my ute and I thought, I, I don't want to go inside. I was living alone. I don't want to go inside and, and do the same thing that's going to happen. that has been happening for the past, you know, 10 years, which is I'm going to go inside, I'm going to drink a heap of grog, I'm going to do some lines, I'm going to smoke a lot of weed, I'm probably going to pass out on the couch, I'll probably have a drink between my legs, I'll probably spill that, wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, stumble to bed, wake up at 6, go to work. Mm. Um, I don't want to be that lonely anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the loneliness was horrific. Like I was so alone. Um, so I sat in my ute and I just I broke down crying. Um, and then I'm like, I can't do it. So I, I rang the only people who I knew that would help and that was mum and dad. Um, and I said, I, I, I need some help. I can't do this anymore. And, and bless them, they... Uh, they came down. They, were, they still live in regional Victoria. They they came down and um, and they helped me get to a, to my doctor. And um, not that I had a regular doctor. They just took me to a doctor and <laughs> um, and that doctor gave me a referral to go see a counsellor. Um, and that counsellor basically said, "You've got two options. If you really want to address your drinking um, and your drug taking, that's to go to a public rehab or a private rehab." Um, and I had no idea about rehabs at that time. And um, so we went home and I had no money, like absolutely zero money. And mum and dad, uh, we, lo- we looked up a couple um, and then found Malvern Private. We didn't know anything about Malvern Private. We just sort of found it. Um, and we gave them a call and uh, they did a health fund check and, I had health insurance, really basic health insurance, and mum and dad said, oh, we'll, we'll cover the gap for you, and, and they did. And a couple of days later, I went to rehab. Wow. And dad took me into rehab on the 30th of August. Um, I didn't stop drinking those couple of days beforehand. They, they advised not to. Yeah, no, neither did I. Very happy about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, crack on. Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. But they just said moderate your drinking and um, 
so I did that, and I still had a f- you know a bit of cannabis left. And uh, the morning before that, I went in. I, I finished off that that cannabis, and um, it was actually Dad's birthday that day, the thirtieth of August, and wow. um, some birthday present for him to take his son into rehab. And um, and none of us knew anything about drug and alcohol treatment and about rehab, and um, and yeah, and Dad dropped me off at Malvern and. Um, that was a really scary experience. Mm. Um, I didn't go there to stop drinking. I went there in, at the time. I went there to learn how to drink. Um, Same. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to go to rehab and learn how to drink like a lady. Yeah, totally, totally. That, yes. <laughs> yeah. What a shock. Oh, absolutely. Like <laughs> I used to look at my brothers and my my brother-in-law especially and, and watch him drink like a normal person mm. and go, geez, I wish I could do that. Mm. Um, and I hope rehab can teach me how to be that person. Mm. Um, because they they told me on at, on the phone when I did my intake that, um, you know you're aware that we're you know we're based on twelve step program and I had no idea what that meant and I'm like that's fine yep, no worries yep. twelve <laughs> steps fifteen steps I don't really mind you're like just help me out um, yeah. so you know I got there and that that was pretty confronting and they took us took me off to my room and I said goodbye to dad and. Uh, you know, sat in a lot of fear about what the next four weeks was going to look like, and um, but just amazed when I, you know, when I joined that first group to see, you know, people like you or me, and you know, I, I expected, actually, I don't really know what I expected. I think I thought I'd see more dishevelled people. Yes. <laughs> um, and I was ashamed to feel that I was going to be a part of that. Mm. Um, but. I met some wonderful, beautiful humans in that in that space, and mm. um, and on that very first day, we had a, a presentation um, from this lovely couple. Chris and David came in and, and gave a presentation on step one of those twelve steps, um, which talked about um, being powerless over over addiction and and the unmanageability of life, um, and suggested if. If you relate to that, then possibly you might be an alcoholic or suffer from alcoholism. And it was like the lights came on. Mm. I was like, wow. I remember going back to my room after hearing them both speak and journaling and going, I finally know what's wrong with me. Yeah. It's like, and I, I was just amazed. And mm. from day one, it was like, I have to be here um, as much as I don't want to be um, and how scared I am. Um this is important, and but the relief that came from hearing them speak and explain alcoholism, mm. um, it, it saved my life. Because once you understand alcoholism, mm. then you can understand that it you are not weak willed, mm. you are not a bad person. Yeah. Like there is this thing going on when you take alcohol, it affects you differently from the person next to you. Yep. And therefore, we cannot take it without the consequences. Yep. I was so convinced that I was just a bad person mm-hmm. and that it was a question of morals. Yep. And then that identification and the weight that was lifted off my shoulders in that moment mm-hmm. and then realising, oh, my gosh, I actually might be able to be sober and be happy yep. because that was a concept I couldn't get my head around, mm-hmm. which I think is why I held on to the idea of, being able to learn how to drink properly as yeah. opposed to no 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 this is this is abstinence for for, for eternity yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, to get some context and some understanding around, oh, that's that's why I didn't stop. Um, mm. You know, that's why I kept going. Like to understand why you behave in a certain manner um, is. It's like the weight was off the shoulders. Mm. Um, and then I just wanted to tell everybody, you know, <laughs> this is why I was such an ass, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it doesn't sort of work that way. So as the manager of Reset Life, mm. which is an abstinence-based program, yep. when did you realise, was it that moment when you realised I can never drink again or did it take? Just, did it still take a while for the penny to drop? No, look, hearing Chris and David talk um, – I knew from day one that drinking was no longer an option for me mm. um, or any other substance. And I think it was hearing not just them talk but hearing, seeing them in, for real, uh, in real life who are people who are living that life. Like mm. I, didn't, I couldn't picture living life without alcohol or drugs because I didn't know anyone who lived that way. Um, like I, if I met somebody who said they didn't drink, I'd just like, oh, I don't trust you. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I you're a bit oh, questionable. Yeah, um, oh, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, yeah, you poor thing. <laughs> um, totally. And I see people give me those looks yeah, now yeah, and I'm like, no, yeah, no, no, I'm yeah. good, I'm, I'm not, good. Yeah, that's right. I'm not missing out. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Um, so, yeah, so it was pretty, like, as I said, from that day one, even I can reread my journal and I, I can see it there. I was absolutely actually crazy but I, I knew that I had that understanding of alcohol and drugs are no longer a part of my life. Mm, mm. So you came out of Malvern and you, you worked your program what did that look like like how did you stay sober over that first 12 months? Yeah like it's being in a, a rehab facility is, is very safe um, and Leaving there was was quite daunting and, and quite scary, but at the same time I, I had, with my counsellor, um, developed a, a very thorough discharge plan um, and I, I was determined. Like I, I was so determined not to go back to that lifestyle. I, I didn't want to go back to that, that – uh, where my men- mental health was when I got to Malvern was, was horrific and going four weeks without drinking and using drugs – my mental health had improved significantly and mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back to where I was. So um, so it was a very thorough plan. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I was introduced to 12-step programs at Malvern um, and I was amazed by, wow, look at all these people, how well they look and how happy they, they all are. Mm. And, mm. Um, and they were such warm people. Mm. Um, I remember going to our first meeting and, and the cheer we got for being newcomers in in the room was just was so heartwarming. Mm. Um, so I knew that 12-step was going to be a big part of my recovery. Um, and and it was from day one. Like the day I discharged, I was at a meeting that night. Um, and it was suggested to me by the councillor that I do 90 meetings in 90 days. And, um, and I took that on and thought, yeah, I can do that. Um, and I did that. And it was, you know, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. It's... Um, you know, you leave treatment and you're exposed to all your triggers mm-hmm. that, that made that were contributing factors to, to drinking and using in the past, and um, and it's learning to manage those without, you know, adopting those old behaviours. And um, but for me, there was safety knowing that whatever I am exposed to today, um, I can get to a an AA meeting or an NA meeting because I was going to both 
in those first 12 months, um, that's the place where I will be comfortable. Mm. Um, and that's my escape now. Like, so, um, so 12 step programs were, were very big for me in the first 12 months. Mm. Did the 1990, um, got a sponsor, got a home group. Um, and it, it just worked. It worked. Yeah. Mm. You've now found your purpose and your passion in what you do for work as a result of getting clean and sober. I can't imagine that you would have become an alcohol and drug counsellor. No, probably not. <laughs> you're still out there. <laughs> How important is the work that you do for your own recovery and sense of purpose today? Yeah, look, I, like I love my work and I love working in this sector. It's, it's, I've been um, given some great opportunities um, so the the reason I got into the work was, as I said, like I've I've wandered through life for most of my life in terms of what career do I want to do, and um, when I got sober, it was a case of what do you enjoy? Like, and I was, you know, it, it's great to be in a space where you can be afforded the luxury of being able to start again. Um, so I thought, yeah, I enjoy talking to people about recovery and and substance use, and I I loved the fact that. When I was in treatment, my counsellor had lived experience um, mm. and he spoke to me in a manner before I even knew that, that I'm like, how does this guy know everything that I'm thinking? Like he's in my head and I can connect to him and I can talk to him. Um, and I thought, I'd, I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that helps someone, you know, turn the lights on. And um, so yeah, I decided to let's get into AOD work and mm. – um, and I went and retrained. Like I, I put that business degree aside and that the trade skills I'd learnt aside and and replaced that for doing a cert four in drug and alcohol and then doing a, a grad dip in counselling. Um, and from there, it's just you know I, I just keep turning up to work and and giving my best and um, and just being awarded these wonderful opportunities. But for me, to be able to sit opposite somebody is a is a it's a privilege mm. for, to sit there and listen to somebody share their deepest and darkest, mm. um, but then to also um, watch them change. Um, yeah, I love how you describe, like you see the lights go back on. Totally, totally. It must be so rewarding. Yeah, and, you know, we, we're lucky as counsellors where um, we can offer that hope to people as well. Mm. Like when you, when you talk to somebody and they reflect back to you, like how do you know that? Um, and you can... If, if, if they want to hear it, share a little bit about what you do and where you've come from, mm. um, you can see the hope, you know, start to uh, start to fill them up. And for me, I, I, don't, I don't want to be someone who ever forgets about where I've come from. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've been in, rec- as I said, recovery over 10 years. Um, for me, abstinence works. Everybody has a different recovery and that's, that's great. Um, but for me, I, I need to be abstinent and um, I've seen people who who have lost touch with their recovery and they minimise and forget about the impact of their substance use um, and pick up again and, and, and I hear them talk about, um, I took off where I left it and mm. it doesn't take long. Like uh, I've heard too many stories of people saying, I had the first couple of times I drank and it was okay. But then that mental obsession crept back in and before I knew it, I was, I was drinking more than I was, mm. you know, 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, 
and the common thread of as to why, like why did you pick up again, is, you know, I let it go. Like I let my recovery go. I, I, I forgot what it was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you'll find people coming to meetings who have mm-hmm. 5, 10, 15, 20 years sobriety. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so that they can stay, stay be reminded yeah. of where it took them yeah. as well as passing on that message to the newcomer. Totally, totally. And if I'm, if I'm having a bad day, I, I, I sit there opposite somebody who's more often than not having a lot worse a day than I am and mm. it really puts things back into perspective mm. of, as to where I'm at in life. Mm. So Reset Life, as we've mentioned, that is an abstinence-based program but then there's also this world of harm reduction. Yep. Can you describe what harm reduction looks like for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Look, as I said, I, I work at First Step and um, Reset Life is, is relatively new to First Step. Um, we've been operating there for uh, about four or five years now with Reset Life, but First Step's been going over 20 years um, from a, a harm reduction lens. And so harm reduction, I, I, the way I best explain it is it's about meeting people where they're at. Mm. It's, um, it's not about talking to people about stopping their substance use. It's, it's helping just manage people and help keeping them alive. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a show of love, it's a show of respect, of compassion. Um, it's, it's not about stopping substance use. Mm. Like People need to come to that decision if that's what they want to do on their own. Um, so f- first step is all about that harm reduction, about supporting people where they're at with their mental health and their substance use mm. um, and helping reduce the consequences, I suppose, of, um, of those Uh, once they start having a big impact on their lives. And I think that's amazing because so many people, like we both did, probably would balk at the idea of forever abstinence. Like that's just not something I could have wrapped my head around in the beginning. And for many people, maybe that's a deterrent. But to know that you can still be supported and Mm. get help, even if you're not ready to completely give up yet, Mm. that's that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ben... How do you think we can work towards reducing this stigma that is still out there around mental health and addiction? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, like, as I said, like, when I was towards the end of my drinking and using, I, I didn't know a single person who didn't live this way of life. Um, like, it would be good to, I think, for us to try and normalise and, um, and keep like you're doing here with your podcast is is keep the discussion going. Um, we need more people speaking up about recovery and uh, about the impacts of, of alcohol and drugs, and um, so that we can break down this stigma attached to it. It's mm. it's such a strong like it, I know it certainly stopped me from from coming forward earlier. Like mm. who knows if I would have come forward earlier if I had have seen you know, more prominent figures speaking about, yeah, hey, I was addicted to alcohol and this is how I drank. Mm. Um, I'm not the guy in the, on the park bench. I'm not the guy in the alleyway. I'm just another n- normal human being. But I didn't I didn't see any of that. I don't know if it, it was around, but I, s- I see a lot more people these days getting up and, and sharing their stories. It's why I uh, continue to, to not hide away from my recovery. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the, the louder we can get with it, um, the better. Yeah, and by having these conversations and and sharing stories like yours, I'm so grateful that you're here today. Your life has changed so much over the last 10 years and I'd love to talk a little bit more about 
the gifts of sobriety. Particularly for you, when we were chatting before, you had mentioned to me that, you know, you didn't even think that becoming a father was on the cards for you. How has your life evolved and grown? Oh, it's, it's, uh, I could have never have predicted or imagined where life would be today um, when I was sitting in that rehab, you know, over 10 years ago. And um, I suppose to put in some context around that, um, in the last few years of my, of my using and drinking, I met this wonderful lady um, and as much as I wanted to be with her, um, my... My substance use just got in the way, and I was I was in this constant tug of war, but in my mind around, she's a beautiful woman, she's intelligent, um, she's a type of person that you'd you'd want to settle down with, but um, she's a threat to my drinking, um, and I hated that. Like when I wasn't with her, I wanted to be with her, and when I was with her, I wanted to get away, in, only mm. because I wanted to go drink the way you yeah, yeah. And, and drink properly. Totally, like, yeah. totally. One beer is not going to cut it. Yeah. Um, so it was this horrible internal tug of war with her, and um, and in the end, like we split up the first time, and um, and I massively regretted that the next day, and you know, over a period of time, managed to manipulate her back into my life, um, and then it wasn't much longer after that she said to me, no. This is this is not working mm. um, because I I was you know I was so distant I was never present or available in the relationship. Um, I remember when she left my house, um, the last thing she said to me was, uh, "You make me doubt the person that I am." Mm. And for me, that really highlighted the fact that I was very I was a manipulator. I, I gaslit her. Um, I behaved appallingly mm. um, and I had a lot of guilt around that. Mm. Um, you can still remember that conversation. Like that's obviously left totally. a scar. Oh, it was big. Yeah. Um, because she said that and walked off mm. and there was no me coming back because I couldn't come back to that. Mm. There's nothing to say because it was all true. Mm. Um, so Do you know what that story just highlights so much for me and I've heard it time and time again when I speak to people who are stuck in in this cycle of addiction where they think or they say to themselves, I'll stop drinking when? So it's like I just need to get in a relationship and then I'll be happy and I won't need to drink or I'll just get the promotion and then I'll feel better and I won't need to drink. And it's that insidious nature of this disease where it, it, it manipulates you into thinking that it's everything else that's causing the problems. Whereas I can guarantee you if you're listening today and you're struggling with your relationship with alcohol, by removing one thing, everything else in your life will blossom and expand and evolve. Yep. Just one thing you've got to get rid of. Yeah, but that's hard because that's that one thing is the only thing that makes me feel comfortable. Mm. Like I, I only get comfort out of that one thing. Mm. And you're asking me to take it away. Like mm. I know what you're saying, absolutely. It is hard. But you're right, if I just remove that, I'll, life turns around massively. Mm. Um, and that's certainly what happened for me. Like she left and um, I continued to drink for another 18 months. Worse, um, more drugs came in and then, then I'm in treatment and I find, find out why I was drinking and using the way I was and, and I reflected back to 
my time with Claire and I was like, oh, God, I've, I've blown that whole relationship. Mm. Um, and she was great. You know, she was amazing. And I let, I let my addiction get in the way of that. Mm. that that's cost me massively. And um, I remember getting out of treatment and um, I rang her and, and said, hey, it's, you know, it's me and I know why um, our relationship failed and um, it was my, my addiction and, um, you know, I, I said sorry and, um, and I said I'd, I'd love to meet up with you and, and have the opportunity to, to do this in person. Um, and her response basically was, you know, I still really like you but no thanks. Mm. Um, I don't trust you. Mm. Um, cause we were, you know, together for nearly two years and, mm. um, as you said, I, I do like you, but I, I don't trust you anymore. And I suppose more importantly, um, she wasn't sure she'd be able to trust herself with me, yeah. um, in terms of her decision-making around what's the right thing to do. I can totally relate um, to that. Yeah. Um, sometimes so you just. You have to hold a boundary. Totally. To keep yourself safe. And good honour, you know. Yeah. Stronger than I ever, <laughs> ever mm. was. Or, mm. um, but she did say to me, look, I do still like you. How about um, we give things 12 months? Um, and she said, I heard it's probably good for people in recovery to give things 12 months. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, she's done her homework. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and... We decided to go 12 months without speaking. Um, it's probably more her decision than mine um, because I would have happily at that time have jumped straight back into things. Um, but to her credit, she said, look, you need to focus on you and I need to focus on me. Um, and I hung up that phone reluctantly, knowing that I wouldn't speak to her again for potentially 12 months. And, um, and she said, you know, touch base, you know, 12 months' time and... Um, and over those 12 months, I, I did reach out to her a couple of times, once via text, another phone call, and to her credit, she didn't respond. Um, wow, yeah. this, this yeah. woman has oh, strong boundaries. Yeah. Oh, I am she's impressed. Great. <laughs> she's great. And, um, you know, it got to my, you know, it got to, I was eight months sober, and I remember this moment really clear. I, um, <coughs> I was at home and, you know, eight months into recovery, eight months into a new lifestyle, and um, I thought about her a lot in those eight months and I think there were times there that that kept me going. Um, but I remember at eight months I, I was I was getting ready for the day and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, you're going to be okay. It doesn't matter what happens here. Um, and I was purely thinking about her and um, is she going to say yes, is she going to say no, has she got a new boyfriend, all that sort of stuff. It didn't matter. Like I knew I was okay and... Because I've created this life now where I've got friends in recovery, I've got a new job, I'm doing volunteer work, I'm, I'm happy. Like, mm. I'm genuinely happy. And I haven't been that way for a very, very long time. Um, and as much as I would like her back in my life, it doesn't matter if it, that doesn't go that way. Mm. Um, and, yeah, four months passed and... I remember speaking to my sister around, how long do I leave it? Like, before I make contact with her. <laughs> one uh, year and one day. Yeah, <laughs> no. I know. Like, <laughs> one I year and one hour. I don't look too desperate. Um, so I gave it a week um, and I enjoyed my week of celebrating my one year um, with my friends um, and family. 
was a, an achievement for them as well. Um, and then I sent her a text, and you know we, you know she responded to the text, and um, the following week we met up for dinner, and and it was amazing. Like I got to tell her everything I was doing with my life, and she got to tell me all the stuff she was doing with her life, and. Um, I remember leaving dinner that night and I said to her, would you like to do this again? Because I know I would. Um, and she said, sure, that'd be nice. And, you know, twelve. long story short, 12 months later we moved in together and um, it's, the relationship was like we'd never been together before. Like it was a brand new relationship. I was a new person. Mm. She was a new person. Um, our relationship was open and honest and transparent. Um, she knew that my recovery was important to me. So she saw that I actually had some passion and some um, some things I was interested in um, and I was helping people and mm. helping myself and I was available. Um, so we moved in together 12 months later. 12 months after that, um, she fell pregnant to our first child, which was just amazing. <laughs> um, what an experience and... Um, and we had our had our first boy, and you know, I was about three months out from his first birthday. Um, they came and met me after after work one night. I got the train home, and you know, we went and sat in the park and and played on the on the on the rug, and um, and then yeah, she asked me to marry her, and it was oh Ben, she just said Let, let's do it at our son's first birthday. Oh, my um, God, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> it was um, – and it was amazing, like, for for someone who, you know, three, four years earlier had said to me, you make me doubt who I am, to then turn around so much to then ask me to marry her, it was uh, – it was a beautiful moment. Mm. It was it – was, I was like, are you joking? Like, are you serious? And she was, like, dead serious and – um, it's probably one of the, the one of the best moments of my recovery has been mm. has been when she asked me that, and we got married at our son's birthday, first birthday. We had all of our friends and family there, and wow. that was wonderful. And um, and then twelve months after that, she fell pregnant with our daughter. Um, so now we've got two beautiful kids and a wonderful marriage, and mm. um, yeah, it's it's. I, I tell the story here and there for people who feel like bridges have been burnt too much. Mm. I thought I burnt them with Claire, and um, but it was it was it wasn't words that um, that made her come back into my life. It was it was my actions. It mm. was my recovery. It mm. was because my word my talk was cheap at that point. Mm. Like I'd I'd lied. I'd cheated. I'd stolen I was such a you know not living a, a very wholesome life and um you know to be able to turn that on its head mm. and show that actually I, I can't do dinner tonight I've got a recovery thing on yeah um showed her the importance of my recovery moving forward I'm not oh my gosh this mm. I just I thank you mm. firstly for sharing oh, that thanks. story that is just incredible mm. and I'm so so happy for you yeah, both thanks what I think that really highlights is the difference between getting sober and getting into recovery. Yeah. Because any anybody can stop drinking. Mm. 
But to work a program of recovery is where these monumental shifts happen and we become the people that we were born to be. We, we step into our potential and we live a life that's in alignment with our mm-hmm. values and our purpose. And that other thing that you mentioned, Ben, at the eight-month mark mm-hmm. where you got to this point where you looked at yourself in the mirror and you thought, I'm going to be okay. Even if this doesn't work out the way I really hope it does, mm-hmm. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And that to me is the moment you know that you're ready for a, a relationship yeah. because you are a whole person mm-hmm. meeting another whole person and together you can grow and evolve and have this beautiful relationship rather than one person trying to complete the other. Absolutely. Like I think initially if we had to got back together it would have been – I wouldn't have been doing it for me. I would have mm. been just mm. trying to do it for the relationship where yeah. um, like I, I truly found who I was at that point. Like those eight months were all about navigating my emotional range. It's about being able to navigate situations where uh, I would want to drink and uh, managing that on my own. Mm. Uh, so being exposed to those triggers. Mm. Um, so it, it was it was crucial really that it sort of it set me up mm. and I'll be forever grateful for it to – when she said, no, we shouldn't talk for 12 months. Yeah. But <laughs> what a queen. Yeah, I yeah. Abs- I'm so impressed yeah, with that part very of your story. Very impressed, so. <laughs> ben, if anyone listening today wanted to know more about First Step and the incredible work that you guys do, yep. where, where should they go? Yeah, look, jump on our website. Um, it's got a good overview of all the different programs we offer at First Step um, through for mental health support, uh, drug and alcohol support. Um, and our legal services as well. Um, so it's got our contact number on there. So you can send an inquiry online or just give re- uh, reception a call. Um, and if you're not directly affected but perhaps a loved one is, yeah. like you, the loved ones can call as well, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Put a call through and if um, you know if we feel it's outside the scope of what we can do at first, step, we can certainly provide those numbers for, for other services that can help because there's plenty of great, AOD services in Victoria, mm. in Melbourne. Yeah, um, so and sometimes it's just about knowing where to start. Totally, and yeah. often the, the, the AOD system can be a little tricky to know what's out there, And mm. um, but you know, organisations like First Step can, can point you in the right direction. Mm. Mm. I have one final question that sure. I love to finish on with sure. all of my guests. Ben, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life today that is happy, joyous and free? Non-negotiables. Um, look, for me, it's it might sound pretty simple for for anybody else, but just living a real honest um, and transparent life. Um, so being able to to have people that I can talk to, um, and primarily that that is my wife. But making sure we dedicate time to to talk. Um, so yeah, honesty and living within my values is is a is a non-negotiable. It's nice to know what my values are today. Mm. Um, exercise is a big thing for my mental health. Um, it's 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 really key for help keeping me not just physically healthy, but my mental health. It um, it helps me de-stress. It helps declutter my mind. Um, so exercise, running especially, is is a non-negotiable for me, um, and you know, having goals. Like I, I need things to work towards um, and that could be um, 
running events, um, it can be employment goals, but I need to keep knowing that I'm moving forward. Um, so they're sort of the three things that help me, keep me stable, help keep me healthy mm. um, and help keep me grounded and connected. I love that. I love that. Honesty, oh my gosh, that's my number one as well. Exercise, moving your body and working towards goals. They're mm. brilliant. Excellent. Yeah. I love them. Great. Thanks, Ash. Ben, we say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so, so much for being here today, for sharing your story and for all of the work that you do. Give back. My pleasure and thanks uh, for all the work you're doing. Well. 